Hello, and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Steve, and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good afternoon, Steve. Shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what we're going to do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be out in the rain, kind of, (laughs) in the field, in the woods, and on the trail. For every episode, we pick a natural history topic, research the science on that topic, head out to a natural area, and share with you everything we've learned. So today we're giving you a bonus episode about one of the most long-lived, shade-tolerant trees in North America. It dominates about one million hectares of forest from the southern Appalachians to southern Canada and west to the central Great Lakes states. So Bill, you have no idea what I've been reading up on. Can you guess the species I'm going to be covering today? And I can give you one more hint. It's the state tree of Pennsylvania. Uh, let me think. Hmm. Shade tolerant. Blue spruce. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I would say eastern hemlock. Suga canadensis. (laughs) Eastern hemlock. So it's also called the Canadian hemlock. Uh, Pretty obvious from the scientific name. Suga canadensis, Canadian hemlock. Anyone call it that? That's the thing. Its range hardly extends into Canada. It's really only in the extreme southeastern border of Canada. (laughs) So, our regular monthly episode will be related to eastern hemlocks. So, I wanted to pave the way with an episode that generally covers some natural history, taxonomy, and various other background info that Bill would normally want me to skip during a regular episode. I had no idea why we were out here. Steve just said to meet him here at Chester. Nut Ridge Park. <laughs> yeah, so I'll be talking about eastern hemlock specifically, but we'll also review some concepts about gymnosperms and conifers in general. But first, why don't we tell people where we are, what the place looks like. <laughs> I always forget about that part. <laughs> uh, we are here, obviously, on a windy day. Oh yeah, for sure. So we We're are kind of hiding in the trees yeah, right now. Early November. We are in Chestnut Ridge Park, which is a, a county park in Erie County, uh, western New York, mm-hmm. which... Uh, is really the county surrounding Buffalo. Yeah. We were here, we were at the park once before. Shale Creek? At Shale Creek. It was a different section of the park, but that's when we did our subnivian zone. Another rainy day, though that day was truly rainy and we had to huddle under an umbrella the entire time. So hopefully we don't even need to get it out this time. But it's a beautiful fall day, despite being cloudy. Lots of leaves still hanging on the trees. Oh yeah. Uh, Hopefully it's not going to start raining. Mm -hmm. But right now, I would call this a second growth forest, wouldn't you? Oh yeah. 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 So we do have some we do have some hemlocks. We're actually standing. We're actually under a hemlock in a, right in a bit of a hemlock stand. Yeah, a nice solid section of hemlock. Mostly yeah. hemlock, maple, and cherry. Beach a bit as well. Oh yeah, that's yeah. true. Especially some some young ones. Yep. As I mentioned, Steve did not tell me what this episode was going to be about. So Steve will be doing most of the talking, and I'll just be making uh, snide comments <laughs> off to the side. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just start on some general info about eastern hemlock. So it likes acidic soils. It actually creates acidic soils as well through its decomposing leaf litter. Um, It also likes cool, moist woodlands. It does well in shade and sun. And because it does fine in the shade, this actually indicates that it's a climax species. So you'll find it in climax forests. These are well-established, mature forests. I've heard it referred to as a hardwood associate. Oh, right. When we think of our hardwood forests around here, we think of beech maple hardwoods with an eastern hemlock associate. Right. Right. And... I just want to say this, that determining how long eastern hemlocks live is extremely frustrating. Why? Have you ever looked this up? Do you have any guesses or anything? How old they get? Yeah, how old they get. I've heard at least 500 years old. 
That's what a lot of things are saying, but without citation. So uh-huh. I've had relatively trustworthy sources giving wildly conflicting numbers on this. <laughs> so apparently the oldest age record, and these are on like record tree websites that okay. I could find, 554 years old. That's in Tyanesta, Pennsylvania. Although there are specimens cited in the literature being over 800 years old, and then it's also noted that many others live over 400 years old. But I couldn't find that backed up. In fact, I saw anything from 150 to 200 most hemlocks will get to, but that's not 500. Right. That's not over 400. It's not even half. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a big, uh, big difference. And there's an unconfirmed tree that's nearly 1,000 years old <laughs> that pops up all over the internet that so many places talk about even in papers is it a specific tree yes and it is well clearly it's in the northeastern section of the united states because that's the only place where eastern hemlock is Uh, but i couldn't find anything but regardless the eastern hemlock is a really slow growing tree so even individuals with a small dbh that's diameter at breast height can still be pretty old Okay, let's go into identification now because... I was thinking about that as you were talking. <laughs> yeah, so, so I think it'd be a good idea that we describe exactly what we're looking at. But I thought it would be even a better idea if we made some tea out of it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Let's grab some twigs and leaves and then... I love that you called them leaves. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as we get some into our hand, we'll describe what they look like. All right. So We actually have some we right have some in front of us. dangling in front of us, right which is pretty incredible. Level. So I'm going to break this off because ultimately... I am going to be breaking it off. (laughs) There we go. I love it. Okay. So the needles look like they're two ranked. Is that R-A-N-K-E-D? That's exactly right. Yeah. Meaning that the leaves look like they're arranged 180 degrees apart from each other, laying in a flat plane, and they're only attached on opposite sides of the twig. And they don't need to be opposite. They can be alternate. So, for example, just to kind of give you an understanding of what it means to be two ranked... If you're familiar with elm in the genus Almus, that tree's leaves are alternate and they're properly two-ranked, meaning that they are exactly 180 degrees from each other and they're alternate. But if you're familiar with tulip trees, Liriodendron tulipifera, they're also alternate, but they're arranged spirally around the branch. So if you're looking down at a tulip tree, you'll see the leaves radially around the stem. Got it. But we have to watch out because I had said... The needles look like they're two ranked, but that's an illusion. (laughs) And it's an illusion that apparently the National Audubon Society fell for. They even say they're 180 degrees apart, but if you look closely, they're not. So hemlock leaves come out radially along any part of the branch. They don't just come out in two perfect lines, 180 degrees from each other. Can you see that? Yeah. But the thing is they lay in a flat plane, even if they're not 180 degrees from each other so they look like they're two ranked but it's just tricking you really (laughs) (laughs) because when we're looking closely at this branch it it actually looks like the needles are kind of sloppily arranged along the twig incredibly sloppily arranged yeah Yeah. (laughs) okay so eastern hemlock's needles are short they're flattened on short stalks and arranged into sprays okay so if we turn the leaves over we can actually see that there are two white stripes on the underside of each leaf. In fact, sometimes they look like they combine into one, but you can kind of see that it's a bit more dull in the middle. So truly it looks like two white stripes. These are called stomatal bands. Stomata 
are in charge of gas exchange in the leaf. They're what open and close and let both water vapor as well as carbon dioxide and oxygen in and out of the leaf. And the fact that the stomatal bands are on the underside of the leaf is important because if it's on the underside, it actually helps trap humidity and reduce water loss while the stomata is open for gas exchange, okay. which is really important when you don't want to get rid of water vapor. One of the only things a tree is trying to do is not lose water. <laughs> <laughs> so the twigs, uh, you can't, uh, th this, this specimen's pretty brown, but um, often you'll get slender yellow brown and finely hairy twigs. But before we get carried away, I actually think it might be a good idea to head over to a shelter and start boiling some of these needles. Okay. Yeah. Right. I, I'm serious about making this tea. Let's All do right, it. Let's go for okay. it. Okay. All right. We're almost to the shelter. The sweet, sweet shelter. <laughs> you have stuff to boil this with? I got my jet boil. Oh, nice. <laughs> Now you said you're going to boil it. Yep. But we're not actually going to boil it, right? You're going to steep it. Oh, I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> if you boil it, then you're making a decoction. So you want to boil the water and then put the, the needles in after, once you remove the heat. Have I ever told you my story about the first time that I made tea from wild plant material? No. All right, so this was back in college. I was taking ethnobotany and uh, the professor sent us out to a colleague of his to his house in the Boston Hills, which is not too far from here. And he led us on a hike through his property collecting uh, wild plants, identifying different edibles and medicinals and uh, talking about ethnobotany. Mm -hmm. And we gathered rose hips and... It's a nice fall treat, rose <laughs> hips. And pine needles, white pine needles. Okay. Took it back to his house, boiled some water, and then we steeped the materials to make a tea. And I was so taken by this. I'd never done anything like this before. I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. So that night, when I went home, headed out in my woods, gathered some white pine needles and what I figured were rose hips, and brought them back to my house. But I boiled the material because I figured, well, you know what? It wasn't hugely flavorful, but I bet if I boil it, and I boil it for a long time, oh. it'll be even stronger. It'll taste even better. So I did that, drank it, and within about a half an hour... I had the worst abdominal pain <laughs> I've ever experienced in my, my wow. life. <laughs> and next time I saw him, I asked the guy, you know, what he thought I had done. And that's when he pointed out, I didn't make a tea. I made what's called a decoction. So a decoction is when you actually boil the plant material. It's a much more aggressive form of drawing out the materials from the plant parts. Well, one thing I do want to say about this tea is that, so I heard a few different ways to make it, and one of the ways, someone did talk about boiling it, and they said, you'll know the tea is ready when the needles have lost a bit of their color. Sure. Which, I mean... <laughs> They'll lose their color when you're yeah. just steeping it too, though. Sure, sure, yeah. So the guy figured that what I had done is I had probably drawn some of the, the sap and the resins out of the pine needles. <laughs> the plant's defenses. Yeah. And that my gut was saying, you're not supposed to be uh, ingesting this stuff. <laughs> So. You listen to your gut, and then your gut told you something different. Honestly, I was minutes away from telling my parents, I think I need to go to the hospital. Oh, my God. And that's how bad the pain was. Jeez. So it subsided within, you know, 45 minutes or so, but wow. <laughs> never forgot that. So, Okay, so um, while Bill was telling his story, I filled up my jet boil with water. I lit the gas, and now we're boiling water right now. And after the water's boiled, under Bill's suggestion, <laughs> we are going to steep the needles and twigs in the water. Ooh. 
Oh yeah, it's, it's starting to put. boil. Okay, gonna turn it off. And now let's get these in there. So Steve is taking the handfuls of needles. Yep, and hopefully it doesn't overflow <laughs> and all my stuff, all my good stuff, my good expensive stuff. <laughs> I can smell it. Yeah, maybe I, I can push it down to lighter. I don't really need it to be dry. It's got that Christmas tree smell. Ooh, I'll talk about Christmas trees in a minute. Because you should not use Eastern Hemlock <laughs> for a Christmas tree. So I know some people are going to be out there saying, wait a minute. Isn't the hemlock tea what killed Socrates? <laughs> yeah. Do you know about it? I know exactly what you're talking okay. about, but uh, they are two very different hemlocks. Yes. Uh, one of them's an angiosperm, the other one's a gymnosperm. It's Eurasian, right? Um, you mean Socrates didn't die in America? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not a historian. <laughs> My undergraduate degree was in philosophy. <laughs> So eastern hemlock is not the poisonous. It's not. We don't have to worry about poisoning ourselves at all. I think I think we're good. Yeah. So I guess let's let's continue on while we're steeping this stuff. Yeah. So if you're looking at hemlock from a distance, you'll you'll notice that it's a pretty handsome tree. It can grow to almost 100 feet tall. It's conical, but loosely so. I've actually read it described as quote unquote irregular and feathery. Um, Eastern hemlocks, they become sexually mature at 15 to 20 years. At this point, they produce separate male and female cones on the same branch. So, one tree, male and female. Monetius. Monetius. Yes. <laughs> I can never keep those straight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The small yellow male cones are produced in the axles of the needles from the previous year, and the female cones are found hanging at the ends of the branches. They're so small and cute. Right, yeah. So the female cones are larger than the male cones, but they're still diagnostically small at maturity compared with other conifers. So about five-eighths to three-quarters of an inch long. Yeah. And that's one of the identification notes is look for the tiny little <laughs> cones. That's, that's really something they, a lot of field guides will tell you to look for. That's got to be the smallest evergreen cone in the northeast, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. By far. Yeah. yeah. But people will still call it a pine cone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Steve and I, I'm sure, we're always the guys on the, the hike with people saying, look, a pine cone. And we'll say, actually, it's <laughs> um, a actually. Cone. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, the female cones, they reach full size by early September. They fully open by mid-October, disperse the seeds into the winter, and maintain on the tree for about a year. The cones are made up of many small, rounded cone scales, and the scales contain pairs of seeds with long wings. They actually kind of look a lot like maple samaras. Those seeds must be tiny. Very small. (laughs) Very small maple samara-like seeds. But before moving on, I also want to mention that eastern hemlock can potentially be confused with balsam fir. Yeah. Abies balsamia. So... Both are evergreen and have flattened leaves with two stomatal bands on the undersides. They're both conical trees, but as I said before, eastern hemlock is loose and irregular, while balsam fir is really truly conical. Like, it's a beautiful, it's like a true cone-shaped tree. Looks like a Christmas tree. Yeah, it really does. Their ranges really only overlap in the New England states, northern Michigan and Wisconsin, and extreme southeast Canada. Balsam fir is much more of a Canadian tree, and eastern hemlock is much more American. Even though it's Suga canadensis, it's much more American. (laughs) They should swap species names. Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) Have you ever seen balsam fir here in western New York? Oh, I know so. You have. And I'll tell you why. Okay. So there are some... Oh... 
We've gone on a lot of hiking trips. Yeah, <laughs> so, we have. So I, I confused myself for a moment. I don't know if I have here. I've seen it in New York. Yeah, up yeah. Up in the Adirondacks. But not here, not in Erie County. Yeah. So there are some clear differences between the two trees. So while eastern hemlock has half-inch needles, balsam firs are anywhere from a half-inch to one inch long. Yeah, they're way longer. They're, they're a bit longer, yeah. yeah. And while eastern hemlocks have short leaf stalks, balsam firs needles are stalkless, and the leaf bases kind of look like suction cups yes. stuck to the branch. Yeah, it's a, yeah. yeah, it's true. And lastly, eastern hemlock has rough, knotty bark with shallow to deep furrows. And balsam fir has smooth bark with... Blisters. Sap blisters, yeah. And they're fun to pop, but (laughs) not when they get on you. Because you don't want sap on your clothes or on your face or in your beard or any of that stuff. That guy that uh, showed me how to make the tea, he used to go around and use a syringe to draw balsam fir sap out of the blisters. What did he use? He would put it on wounds as a wound treatment. He was big into the the wild medicinal stuff. (laughs) That is a wild medicinal. (laughs) So now that we know what the eastern hemlock looks like, right, we have a a basic, a pretty good idea. Shallow to deep furrows with the bark. It's got the flattened needles and flattened sprays. Uh, It's somewhat conical but loose. And it's got those two stomatal bands on the underside of the leaves. Great. So now that we know what it looks like, Let's get some taxonomy out of the way. <laughs> Yay! And this is what Bill would normally have been annoyed with in a regular episode. No. But this is a bonus episode, so I'm going crazy! <laughs> the rules don't apply. So, Bill, I want you to sit back and relax so I can get this out of my system. Go for it. Actually... Take this. <laughs> so just relax. <laughs> all right. So first of all, unlike every other plant species that we've talked about on previous episodes, including witch hazel, maple, pokeweed, sumac, multiflora rose, and goldenrods, eastern hemlock is a gymnosperm. And even more specifically, it's a conifer or cone-producing species. And even further than that, it's in the Panaceae, or pine family. So I'm going to back up and just explain a few things now. Uh, I was just going to ask. So the pine family is not a family of flowering plants, or angiosperms. Instead, they're a member of a much older lineage of plants known as gymnosperms. So the angiosperms, or flowering plants, have been around for about 120 million years, while the gymnosperms have been around for about 370 million years. It's my great hope that we'll do an episode on gymnosperms in the future, but for now, just know that gymnosperms are made up of conifers, those are cone-producing species, like in the pine family, cycads, which look like and are often confused with palms or ferns, ginkgos, we have our one species of ginkgo, and natophyta. And I'm going to ignore that last one because I don't really know much about it, but I do believe I've encountered at least one species out west from this group in the genus Ephedra. Oh. It's actually not incredibly rare. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a Western genus, um, but it's really not that important, so I'm going <laughs> to not really talk about it in any details for the purpose of this episode. But like angiosperms, gymnosperms produce seeds, but they lack flowers. And because I like to link our episodes together, during the sap episode, we mentioned that gymnosperms also lack a specialized type of transport tissue that flowering plants have called vessel elements. Oh, yeah. Remember, angiosperms have tracheids and vessel elements in their xylem, 
while gymnosperms only have tracheids. And just to explain what I mean by that, vessel elements are larger and more advanced than tracheids, meaning that they can transport more water more quickly up to their leaves. And also remember that the presence or absence of vessel elements is the primary feature that distinguishes flowering trees as hardwoods, think hardwood forests, and conifer trees as softwoods. If you want to know more about that, you should check out... Episodes 17 and 18. On sap. Yes, our two sap episodes, yeah. right. And am I correct, gymnosperms, doesn't that refer to naked seeds? It does. That's. I think that's what it means. Yeah. Yep. Now, what is angiosperm? Non-naked seeds? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is. Angiosperm. Yeah. yeah, we should know. We should know the etymology at least. Right. Now that we've covered the basics of gymnosperms, let's move down to the pine family. It's not a huge family. Uh, we have 21 species in New York, and there are only 231 species worldwide. That's not a lot. That is not a lot. So the Pinaceae is the largest family in the pine order, the Pinales, but it's definitely not in the top 50 largest families of plants. And based on my math, over 90% of all plants are flowering plants or angiosperms. While gymnosperms only make up 1,081 species or just 0.3% of all plants. Seriously? Yeah. When we're comparing angiosperms to gymnosperms, we're comparing 90% of all plants to less than half of 1% of all plants. Wow. I had no idea. 1,081 species? That's crazy. <laughs> That's minute. Oh, it's, it's real small. So but in the past, there were many, many, many more species of gymnosperms. Right. Angiosperms, it's kind of like the age of angiosperms. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So now let's move on to the closest relatives of eastern hemlock. These are the genera within the Pinaceae, and we'll move from largest to smallest. So Pinus, these are the pines. They make up 113 species. That's about half the family. So aptly named, yeah. the pine family, Pinaceae. <laughs> then we have Abies. These are the firs, make up 47. Picea, or the spruces, 38. Larix, the larches, 11. Suga, the hemlocks, yeah, uh, 9. And Pseudosuga, or the Douglas firs, they make up 4. Now, there are five other genera that account for nine additional species, but they're all limited to Southeast Asia and the Middle East. So we have nine Asian species. Right. So now let's move on to Suga genus in general. So North America has four species. We have two hemlocks on the west coast, Suga heterophylla, the western hemlock, and Suga mertensia, the mountain hemlock. In the northeastern U.S., we have eastern hemlock, Suga canadensis, and Carolina hemlock, Suga caroliniana which is limited to the Appalachian Mountains in western North Carolina and Virginia. Now, the Carolina hemlock's entire range overlaps with the southern range of eastern hemlock, meaning that these species can be growing side by side in areas where Carolina hemlock occurs. So if you're in the southern Appalachians and you're not sure which hemlock you're looking at, Carolina hemlock has longer needles and cones than eastern hemlock, and the needles are also a bit of a deeper green color. When they're side by side, you can really tell them apart. I also found this fascinating. Surprisingly, Carolina hemlock has a more recent common ancestor with the Asian species than it does with Eastern hemlock. So okay. Carolina hemlock actually rests in the Asian clade of species with Eastern hemlock being sister to that clade. What's a clade? A, a group of species. Okay. Right. This helps resolve why Suga caroliniana can interbreed with the Asian species while Suga canadensis cannot. But isn't that kind of mind-blowing? Because if you were just to guess without yeah. any genetic data that you'd say, oh, well, they're two North American species, they probably they must evolved be from the related. same. Yeah. yeah, and they're not. They're actually relatively 
unrelated. Damn Same genetics. genus and all. Yeah, it's crazy. But that's kind of exciting because oh, yeah. a North American species sharing a, a lineage more closely with an Asian species than its neighbor right. is, is... Where they grow side by side. And it, it's just great additional evidence for tectonic plates and the way they move and evolution over time and deep time. It's just, it's such a beautiful idea and it tells a really cool story. I read the whole paper on it and put one one sentence in my notes. <laughs> it was a cool paper. I, I didn't understand any of it, but it was a cool paper. I, I'm not a geneticist. So now let's get into the forest types. One interesting thing with hemlock distribution is that there are two typical hemlock forest types. And it, these aren't really much of what we see here. Right. But in the northeastern range, you can have hemlock-dominated stands. These have closed canopies all year round, meaning that the ground layer is in shade for the entire year. And also, in the southeast range, you can have deciduous forests with riparian, hemlock, and rhododendron understories. These have fully to partially closed canopies, meaning that the ground layer, if it's going to have some sunlight, it's not going to have much sunlight reaching the ground. Now, we compare those types of forests with northeastern and southeastern deciduous forests, where the summer is a closed canopy because there's leaves on the trees, and in the winter, it's an open canopy because the leaves dropped in the fall. So these different forest forms have different ecological functions, but I'm going to leave them for just a minute because I want to touch on them in just a few minutes when we start talking about eastern hemlock as a foundational species. And I'll also describe what that is as well. So let's quickly cover some animal uses. And since Bill and I are animals... Uh, <laughs> is it time? Native Americans and woodsmen have often used the twigs and leaves for tea. <laughs> I'm impressed. And You're talking about people. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about human animals, so... <laughs> You caught me. So Steve just took the lid off the jet boil. I'm going to pour it through a strainer because I don't know if you've ever... You're a wuss. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever goofed around with looking through the needles of of hemlocks, but very often, I mean, there's there's frass, there's spiders, a lot of good stuff, really. This is going to get all over everything. Steve has a little tea ball and he's, I don't know if you guys can hear it, he's pouring it. Yep, poured it. I strained it through a little T-ball. Yeah. And, uh, Bill, I'm going to let you be the one to try it first. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pour it for myself as well. So it smells like that Christmas tree smell coming off of it, mm-hmm. which, but not in an un- unpleasant way. Here, cheers. I, st- there we go. <laughs> I really like that. It's good. Yeah. And That's it didn't good. take long. We no. didn't steep that for very long at no. all. I did ask Bill to bring, if he had any, to bring some of his maple water that he had brought on the SAP episode. But do you want to tell them what you were going to do and then forgot well, to do? I knew I didn't have any SAP water. So what I was going to do was fabricate SAP water <laughs> by doing the reverse. Normally you take SAP and boil it to get syrup. I was going to take syrup and add it to water to make SAP, but I forgot to bring it. Yeah. <laughs> I was and so I- intrigued <laughs> by what Steve had planned because he just said, meet me at Chestnut Ridge. We're going to record, <laughs> which you've never done before. Oh, I've definitely never done. In fact, I'm usually like, Bill, I need another day. <laughs> I was going to say, I just stirred mine with my finger, and I assumed you did not want me to stir yours with my finger. No. All right. All right. One this more is, time. This is sweetened. I have to say, again, same with the maple syrup. I liked it better without any additions. Yeah. I think too. I like the just the hemlock on its own. It, yeah. That was good. That's that was really, really good. good. All so, right. So while Bill drinks a little bit more of his tea, I'll mention a few other human-animal uses and a few things they're actually not used for. 
So the wood throws sparks. Both Eastman and Peterson said this. So don't burn eastern hemlock logs when you're trying to eat up your tea. <laughs> so they also don't make great Christmas trees because when they dry out, the needles fall. I have heard that, yeah. And apparently you can also make flour and ultimately bread from the cambium layer under the bark. For review, the cambium layer is just the living tissue that contains the phloem and the xylem. Again, CSAP episode 17 and 18. <laughs> So the wood really isn't used for lumber because the knots that I mentioned earlier, they're basically hard as stone and they chip steel blades. But the lumber is taken for pulp, more or less the cellulose fibers that are used for making paper. Um, And the wood holds railroad ties really well, apparently. So it has been used for that traditionally. The bark is also rich in tannins. So historically, it has been used for tanning leather. And that actually led to the initial decline in hemlocks about 200 years ago. Yeah, around here... I, remember, I know I've read accounts of large amounts of hemlocks being cut and used in the tanning factories in the Northeast. Yeah. Huge yeah. numbers. Non-human animals also use hemlocks. Uh, it's got plenty of pests. Just to list a few off, there's hemlock mites, the hemlock looper and false hemlock looper caterpillars, the hemlock borer, and plenty of fungal associates. Some seed foragers include the black-capped chickadee, dark-eyed juncos, crossbills, and pine siskins. Can you imagine a crossbill opening up the cone, the little tiny cone, to get at those seeds? Well, that's what the beak's for. Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) But I was just thinking, when we were talking about cones before, with those seeds so small, I was wondering who would eat those mostly small birds. Chickadees got those tiny little beaks. (laughs) Additionally, eastern hemlocks hold a ton of snow, so white-tailed deer hang out under the tree uh, where the snowpack is significantly reduced in the wintertime. And they also consume some foliage and twigs, and they can create pretty substantial browse lines and forests. Have you seen those crazy pictures online where it's just like, it's almost as like someone took a hedge trimmer and just, you know, did a perfect line. About four feet high, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just as tall as the tallest deer can reach up. Also, people do use hedge trimmers on them. People like them, and uh, they use them on their property and trim them up. Okay, so back to non-human animals. Uncontrolled deer populations have actually also led to the loss of many hemlock seedlings, making recruitment difficult, like I said, in areas where deer have not been properly controlled. Um, Porcupines also like to chew on bark, but way high up in the tree. (laughs) I know they they feed on uh, pines. I didn't realize they feed on hemlocks, too. Yeah, okay, so I'm done with animal and human animal uses. Kind of. I'll be talking about them a little indirectly. Um, from here on out. So now we want to talk about eastern hemlock as a foundational species. And just to describe what that is, I'll quote from the primary paper I used for this topic. A foundational species, structural or functional attributes, creates and defines an entire ecological community or ecosystem, and its loss can have dramatic effects on our perception of the landscape and broad consequences for associated biota ecosystem function and stability and i know what you might be thinking that sounds a whole heck of a lot like a keystone species yeah but a little different too right so the major difference is that a foundational species occupies the lower trophic levels while something like a wolf that occupies the top predator trophic level is at the top (laughs) yeah right so and this makes me think back to last episode about acorn dispersal. I wonder if oaks are a foundational species as well, because I was listening to our most recent episode, and you had said, yeah. I could almost quote you by saying, oaks can be considered a keystone species. And when I heard that, I was thinking, can something in the low trophic level be a keystone species? I think both of us, when 
I initially read that phrase that an oak is a keystone, keystone species in some areas, mm-hmm. and then when you heard it on bike, I think both of us were like, "Hmm." Yeah, it seemed really a little weird, right? Keystone species, yeah. right? So, foundational species are not only locally abundant and regionally common, but they also create locally stable conditions required by many other species. They also serve to stabilize fundamental ecosystem processes such as productivity and water balance. Now, water balance is important, and we'll describe specifically how hemlocks tie into that in just a minute. But throughout the decades, researchers have suggested various terms that have some or all of the attributes of foundational species. And this includes, maybe chime in if you've heard some of these, core species, dominant species, keystone species, structural species, and ecosystem engineers. So beaver. Hey, like a beaver. Hemlocks and beavers, man. (laughs) And lastly, based on this understanding of what a foundational species does, unfortunately, worldwide, foundational species are declining. And this is due to your regular cast of characters. Introductions and outbreaks of non-indigenous pests and pathogens, of course, eruptions of native pests, over-harvesting and high-intensity forestry, and deliberate removal of individual species from forests. So... Hemlocks are declining like many other foundational species, but let's mention what makes them so important. So let's explain the ecosystem services that hemlocks provide. And this is something that I got from Eastman. Hemlock canopies filter out light across the entire spectrum of light. And this creates what is called blue shade. And this is different from the brighter green shade that you often get from deciduous canopies. Have you heard these before? Blue and green shade. Vaguely. Sounds vaguely. Yeah, I, it's not something I read in the, the literature, but what the literature does say is that in hemlock-dominated stands, the combination of this deep shade, which I'm thinking is this blue shade, and acidic, slowly decomposing litter, this results in a cool, damp microclimate, slow rates of nitrogen cycling, and nutrient-poor soils. Now you're like, what's so great about nutrient-poor soils? And anyone who likes orchids or some of the more rarer plants, you know, you just don't want an understory totally taken over by, you know, uh, like multiflora rose or, uh, or any of the regular invaders. Nutrient-poor soils make competition difficult, and that's partly why we get some of these uncommon plants like orchids in the genus Goodyera, a.k.a. the rattlesnake plantains. We get Galeris spectabilis, the showy orchid, as well as Oxalis montana, the common wood sorrel, which is, I think, my favorite wood sorrel. They grow in a beautiful stand of hemlock down at my my grandparents' land. I love that you have a favorite wood sorrel. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a big family, you know. And also, the other ones... There's such a headache to key out. Yeah. You need like a hand lens or you need to bring it under a scope. Some of the, my least favorite plants to key out in the field. So additionally, canopies of evergreen hemlocks have a higher leaf area index and lower transpiration rates per unit leaf area than canopies of co-occurring deciduous trees. What I'm basically saying is that even though hemlocks have a greater leaf surface to ground surface ratio than deciduous trees, they actually leach less water out of the soil than deciduous trees. Bill, does that make sense to you? It does. Okay, I want to make sure that I'm speaking clearly about this. Although hemlocks have much greater whole tree respiration rates in the spring and fall, when deciduous trees are leafless, during the summer, hemlocks transpire about 50% of the total water released by deciduous trees. 
So deciduous trees are sucking much more water out of the soil and then up through the roots, through the trunk, and out through the leaves into the atmosphere. They're just getting rid of the water much faster than eastern hemlocks. And so now you can imagine why eastern hemlocks hold onto water in the soil much better yeah. than a deciduous forest might. Makes sense. So these characteristics of hemlock, along with its high snow interception rates, mediate soil moisture levels, like I was just saying, yeah. stabilize stream base flows, which is incredibly important, and decrease daily variation in stream temperatures, which is wildly important for the amount of oxygen that's in the water and many other characteristics of streams. So this means that streams that are flowing through hemlock forests support unique assemblages of species that are intolerant of seasonal drying, such as salamanders, fish, and freshwater invertebrates. Okay, so now we kind of get to the downside of things. And hemlocks have experienced three precipitous declines that we know of. The first was estimated to be about 5,500 years ago when the combined effect of regional climate change and an outbreak of an insect that's actually pretty similar to one I mentioned earlier, the eastern hemlock looper, a geometrid moth caterpillar, which is currently one of hemlock's most serious defoliating pests. The second decline was about 200 years ago, caused by converting forest into agricultural land, increases in fire, and extensive logging for timber and tannin for tanning leather, which we already kind of brought up a little bit before. Yeah. And the third is currently ongoing. And no, it's not climate change. Climate models actually predict increasing abundance of eastern hemlock. But since the mid-1980s, a little hemipterin from East Asia has had a severe negative impact on eastern hemlock. The true bug in question is the hemlock woolly adelgid, Adelgis suge. And this little insect could spread throughout eastern hemlock's entire range within the next 25 years oh, if action isn't taken. So this is a point where I want to leave the audience on a cliffhanger. <laughs> because later this month, we'll be releasing an episode about the hemlock woolly adelgid and I don't want to spoil you guys. <laughs> so in that episode, you can look forward to hearing all about the effects that the adelgid has on ecosystems that are stabilized or created by eastern hemlock trees. We'll probably talk about functional loss of a species versus total loss of one. We'll probably talk about the effect of climate change on the adelgid itself or on eastern hemlock. And we'll also talk about what's being done about this pest and what smarter people than us are thinking about the future of eastern hemlock. We'll try to all do that. In an upbeat way. <laughs> <laughs> I think we try. <laughs> yeah. Because it sounds like you're saying, in next episode, we're going to talk about something very depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll do it in our nice jovial manner that yeah. we tend to do our episodes in. Guys, we, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And first and foremost, we'd like to thank our growing list of supporters on Patreon. A special thank you to our top patrons, Alyssa, Rob, Molly. We named the dog Indy, Bethany, Matt, and especially Scott, Ken, and Diane. You guys, thank you so much for helping make this podcast happen. And keep those reviews coming, guys. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Lastly, we'd like to thank our new anonymous five-star reviewers. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and for anyone listening now who hasn't reviewed yet, we'll definitely give you a shout-out by name if you give us a written review so yeah. we know who to thank. Next episode, we'll announce what we're doing to celebrate our 25 written reviews. We'll also let you know about our Kiva donation. That's all thanks to our Patreons on Patreon.com. And if you have any of your own questions, comments, or episode suggestions, send us an email at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Visit us on Instagram at fieldguidespodcast. Follow us on Twitter at fieldguidespod. Like and review us on Facebook. And visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. 
If you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash thefieldguides. But if you're like us and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Because as we said, it really helps us get the word out to more people. So thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you later this month for an episode on the Hemlock Woolly Adelgid. Take care, folks. We'll see you soon. See ya.